Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, most of us feel pretty good when we get invited to a party, don't we? doesn't necessarily mean that we go to the party, but we feel pretty good when we get invited to a party. But let me ask you this question. What would you do if you threw a party nobody came to? I actually had an experience like that once. You want to hear a story? When I was in my second year at Florida Southern College down in Lakeland, uh, I was invited to be part of a fraternity. The thing was, this fraternity that I was invited to be a part of did not yet actually exist. It existed at the college at one point, actually was thriving at one point, but then it was removed. And when I was there, when I was in my second year, somebody from national office came in to bring the fraternity back. And so as a second year student, I was invited, along with some others, to be a part of this initial class of recruits to essentially recolonize the fraternity, as they put it, and build the fraternity from the ground up. And that seemed really exciting, and so I agreed, and, and I was into it at first. But then as the semester went on, what happened? Life got busy. You ever been there before? I was taking six classes that semester. I was trying to keep a good GPA because I knew I wanted to go to divinity school after I finished college. I had a part-time job at a church. I was heavily involved in some other campus organizations. I just didn't have a whole lot of time to devote to this fraternity. And that was not just true of me. That was true of a lot of the guys, not all of them, but a lot of the guys in this initial class of recruits. Well, it came time for Rush Week. Who's familiar with Rush Week? Rush Week is that time of the semester when students who are interested in going Greek, joining a fraternity or sorority, what they do is they attend events sponsored by the Greek organizations, they visit houses, they interact with the members, hopefully determining which fraternity or sorority that they want to join, and also hopefully at the very end of the week receiving an invitation to be part of that Greek organization. Well, it was Friday night, it was the very end of rush week, and we were sitting in our chapter room, and we realized that we had done a terrible job, just an awful job at recruitment. Now, normally, you're required to be at these different events if you're part of the organization, but because we were so new, there wasn't much accountability for that, and so a lot of us, me included, we were absent, we were too busy, we had other things going on. We really didn't make our presence known to these, uh, these men, these students. However, we still managed that night to put together a few invitations. Well, it was Saturday morning, the very next morning, and we were standing in the quad along with all the other fraternities as people were rushing down the hill. Men were rushing down the hill to join their new band of brothers. There was energy. There was excitement only not a single person, not one person joined our fraternity that day. 
This is probably the only time this ever happened in the college's history, to my knowledge. It was humiliating. To make matters even worse, we had a big party planned that day for all these new recruits. But you know what? No new recruits were coming to the party. It's remarkable, by the way, that that fraternity actually still exists and is doing pretty well, from my understanding, based on the uh, bad start that it had. But not only was all this humiliating to have it happen so publicly, but it was also revealing. It revealed where our priorities were. Our priorities were not necessarily, for a lot of us, our priorities were not with that fraternity. Otherwise, we would have done a better job that week. Our priorities were in other places. Well, as Pastor Will mentioned during the announcements, we are in the midst of a message series here at Asbury called Stories Jesus Told. We saw the video just a moment ago. Stories Jesus Told, in which we're looking at, we're exploring, we're examining the parables of Jesus. Jesus told dozens and dozens of parables over the course of his public ministry. And these parables convey profound spiritual truth about God and God's kingdom. And the parable that we're going to look at today actually shares a lot of similarity to the experience that I had in college. Because this parable that we're going to look at, it involves a party that nobody initially wanted to come to. However, the reason nobody initially wanted to come to this party, it's not that the host, the person throwing the party, like in our case, had misplaced priorities. Instead, those on the guest list, those who were invited to the party, had misplaced priorities. Uh, this parable that we're going to explore has been called the parable of the great banquet. It is found in two Gospels. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at Luke's version today. So with all this said, I invite you to listen carefully to these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. Hear now the Word of God. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be! to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, There is still room for more. There is always room for more and more in God's party. Amen? There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. This is God's intent, that the house would be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as we wrap our brains around this parable... The first thing I want to do is I want to revisit a point that we've made a couple of times already in the sermon series. And that point is this. Jesus hardly ever told parables randomly. He hardly ever told parables randomly. Instead, normally something happened. 
Usually something came up that led Jesus to tell these stories. And so with this in mind, check out again what it says here at the outset of the story. This is from Luke 14, verse 15. We just read this a moment ago. Hearing this, somebody say the word this. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And so the first question, in trying to understand this parable, the first question we have to ask ourselves is this. Hearing what? What exactly did this man at the table hear that led him to make this statement that inspired Jesus to tell this parable? What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Well, to answer this question, what do we have to do? We have to go back even earlier in this chapter, Luke chapter 14. And so at the beginning part of Luke 14, and I would invite you at some point today or some point this week, read Luke 14 in its entirety on your own. It really gives the context for the story. But at the beginning part of Luke 14, Jesus has been invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee. Uh, I'll remind us that the Pharisees were a group of Jewish religious leaders um, who by and large back then, uh, there were probably some exceptions, but by and large, they did not care for the ministry of Jesus. They didn't care for his miracles. They didn't care for his um, healings. They didn't care for his uh, preaching or teaching or anything like that, his interpretation of Scripture. They were constantly leveling accusations against Jesus, poking fun at Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has been invited to this particular Pharisee's home, that is not necessarily an indication that this particular Pharisee respects Jesus or is so honored that Jesus, of all people, would join him at his home for a meal. If anything, it's because this Pharisee, the host, and the other Pharisees with him are looking for something to what? Something to criticize. In fact, this is what Luke tells us in the opening verse of chapter 14. Listen with me. One Sabbath day, so this happened on the Sabbath, one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were what? They were watching him closely. Sort of reminds me of these guys. You remember these guys? And the Muppets? They sit up in the balcony. Thankfully, we don't have a balcony here in the sanctuary. But they sit up in the balcony. They're criticizing. They're poking fun. Well, it might seem kind of silly, but that's actually not that far off from what's going on here in the story. Uh, these people in attendance at the party, they've probably got their arms crossed, and they're saying to themselves, let's see what kind of trouble Jesus gets himself into. But Jesus being the incredibly wise teacher that he is. He's one step ahead of them, isn't he? Part of what Jesus does here is he uses this dinner party with all of these social elites, all of these somebodies, we might say, the people that everybody looked up to, he uses this dinner party as an opportunity to talk about who you should invite to a party. When you throw a party, Jesus says this directly to the host. He's looking at the host as he says this. When you throw a party... Sort of like what you're doing right now. Don't invite your friends. Don't invite your relatives. Don't invite all of your rich neighbors. 
All they're going to do is invite you to one of their parties in return. Instead, do you know who you should invite? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In other words, he's saying, invite those who are marginalized. In an economy that was built on manual labor back then, if you couldn't work, well, you really couldn't support yourself. Invite those who are marginalized, those who cannot repay you. Then at the resurrection of the righteous one day, God will honor you. God will reward you for inviting those who could not return the favor. Well, after saying all this, that's when this person in attendance makes the statement, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. But the way the man words this statement, it's almost like he assumes, he just has this assumption that he's going to be there. And so Jesus tells a parable to challenge this assumption. Not because, I want to be clear about this, not because the man is not invited. Everybody is invited to God's kingdom. Amen? Everybody is invited to God's party, God's banquet. Uh, we sang Charles Wesley's great hymn a few moments ago. The invitation, Charles Wesley says, is to all. It is to all. So not because the guy's not invited, but because Jesus wonders, even after receiving the invitation, if he's really going to make the kingdom of God a priority. Jesus begins, there was a man who decided to throw a great feast, and he sent out many invitations. Now, one thing that becomes clear to us at the start of the story is that this party, this feast that this man is throwing, it is not a last-minute get-together. Some of us throw parties at the last minute, don't we? And we just kind of put them together, hoping that people will come, hoping that people will join us. This party was not like that. I mean, this party was carefully planned out to the very last detail. This guy went to Party City, right? I mean, he, he did all, all the work. He, he, he planned this out to the very last detail. And then he sent out his servant to tell the guest. And he probably did this weeks, months ahead of the party. The way it worked back then is if a rich person wanted to throw a party, he would send his servant to tell the people on the invitation list uh, far ahead of time who would then confirm their attendance. They would RSVP, and then when the party was finally ready, he sent the servant back out to tell them to come to the party. Check out again what it says here in verse 17. When the banquet was ready, he, that would be the host, sent his servant to tell the what? Pay attention to that word guest. Guest, come, the banquet is ready. Not potential guest. Not possible guest. Guest, in other words, these folks had already confirmed their attendance. They had already said, yes, I'm going to come to the party. If they had a smartphone back then, like many of us do, they would have put it on their calendar app. But then one by one, the excuses roll in. Now, as people, we are really good at making excuses, aren't we? We might not want to admit it, but we are pretty good at making excuses. However, a lot of the time, our excuses are pretty pathetic. Sorry, I don't have my homework. Why? My dog ate it. Sorry, I'm late to work. My alarm clock didn't go off. I heard about a police officer who pulled a woman over for speeding, and she said, sorry, officer, I was speeding. It really wasn't my fault. The wind was pushing my car. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the time, our excuses are pretty pathetic. However, the excuses that these three people offer aren't like that. 
they carry more weight. Let's consider all three of them. Excuse number one, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Now, some of us might wonder, why on earth would you buy a field? Would you make such a serious purchase without first inspecting it? Anybody wondering that? We have to recognize how land purchases worked back then. In the ancient world, land was a serious investment. I mean, it's still a serious investment today, but far more so back then. There were no banks, there were no stocks, there were no bonds. Your wealth, if you had any, and most people didn't have any wealth, but if you had any wealth, your wealth was typically tied up in land. And Israel is a small country, not a whole lot of land to go around. The fact that this guy had land or was buying land, I mean, he was pretty wealthy. He was pretty well off. And so he had to make sure that he was making a good investment. His security and well-being and the security and the well-being of his descendants who would one day inherit this land depended on it. And to be fair, land purchases back then did require an after-purchase inspection. Just like today, when you close on a mortgage loan, what happens? You have a final inspection. So far from being pathetic, this guy's excuse, it's pretty good. What about the second excuse? I have just bought five pairs of oxen, and I want to try them out. Well, like the first guy, this guy was also making a serious investment. What had probably happened is that he and the owner of these oxen had agreed upon a price ahead of time. Let's say $2,000, $3,000, something like that. Uh, I'm not sure how much oxen would have cost back then. I'm sure they would have been pretty expensive. Uh, but they had agreed upon a price ahead of time. And so he was coming to make sure that this price was reasonable and this price was fair. Who could blame him? I mean, would any of you want to purchase a car without first testing the car? Has anybody ever done that before? Probably not. I mean, if you're going to spend $5,000, $10,000, $20,000, dollars on a car, you're going to want to try that car out first. This guy wanted to try out these animals. And then finally, what about the last excuse? I just got married, so I can't come. Honest and straightforward. This might be the best excuse of them all. Sorry, I can't come to the party now. My wife says no. Any husbands ever been there before? Don't raise your hand. Especially if your wife is sitting next to you right now. Actually, there's a lot more to it than my wife says I can't come. Remember that marriages back then, by and large, were prearranged, right? And so that meant that the couple didn't necessarily know each other all that well until they were married. And actually, marriage was such a serious arrangement that the law of Moses specified that men were excused from military service during the first year. This is what it says in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Again, this is part of the law of Moses. A newly married man must not be drafted into the army or be given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife he has married. Hopefully the happiness continues after the first year, but certainly during the first year, spend time at home bringing happiness to the wife that you have married. Yeah, a lot of wives are saying amen. <laughs> so if we think about it, all of these excuses, I mean, come on, you've got financial excuses, you've got familial excuses, all of these excuses carry weight. 
that's precisely the point that Jesus is making. Jesus' overall point is that God won't accept excuses of any kind, even seemingly good excuses for missing out on the kingdom. Folks, is it any wonder that as soon as Jesus tells this parable, and again, I invite you, read Luke 14, but as soon as Jesus tells this parable, he follows up the story with these words in verses 25 and 26 to the crowd that's following him. It says, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Now, some of us might be thinking, wait a minute, hate? Why on earth is Jesus talking about hate? I thought Jesus was all about love. He was the embodiment of God's love. Remember, Jesus isn't talking literally. He's using hyperbole. What's hyperbole? Hyperbole is a rhetorical tool that rabbis like Jesus would use. It's where you exaggerate to get your point across. We use hyperbole, don't we? Here in Florida, what do we say about the weather? Oh my goodness, it's a million degrees outside. Is it really a million degrees? Might feel like a million degrees, but if it were really a million degrees, I mean, we would just burn up. We would not be here. We could not exist. But what we're saying is it's hot, it's uncomfortable, it's humid. I don't want to go outside right now. It's too painful, too uncomfortable. Or how about this? When I was growing up, my mom would say to me, Christopher, my mom always called me Christopher, never once called me Chris, but she said, Christopher, you can do anything. Is that true? Nobody's saying yes right now. <laughs> but is that true? Can I really do anything? I'll never play basketball like Michael Jordan. I will never be as smart as Albert Einstein. But what my mom was saying was, if you work hard, if you put forth the effort, well, in that sense, you can accomplish your dreams and you can do anything. We use hyperbole. Jesus used hyperbole. He's using hyperbole here. What Jesus is saying in a nutshell is that the kingdom of God following me must be of utmost importance. More important than your career, more important than your financial obligations, your financial security, yeah, it must even be more important than your family. Not that you shouldn't love your family, not that you shouldn't be devoted to your family, but when it comes down to it, more important than your family. And folks, there are people out there who know what a commitment like that entails. I came across a true story about a young woman who decided that she was going to give her life to Jesus Christ and get baptized. She had never been baptized before. So she came to the worship service she brought her luggage with her, and she put the luggage up against the wall. And so afterwards, somebody came to the pastor and said, well, why did she bring her luggage with her? And the pastor said, you don't get it. When that young woman told her father that she was going to become a Christian, he said to her, if you go ahead and do this, you will no longer be my daughter. You will no longer be welcomed back in this home. That's how important the kingdom of God was to this young woman. She was willing to have ties with her family cut. Not that she was cutting those ties. Let's be clear. 
She had no desire to cut those ties. She cared deeply about her father. Her father was cutting those ties. But at the same time, she was okay with that. She could live with that. That's how important the kingdom was. Contrast that woman's commitment with us Christians here in America. And I might step on some toes right now, but you know what? That's okay. Because the gospel is meant to afflict the comfortable as much as it's meant to comfort the afflicted. But contrast that woman's commitment with us Christians here in America. I mean, we don't go to church when the weather's bad. And I'm not talking about really severe rain where it's dangerous to drive. I'm talking about light rain. Oh, it's raining outside. Can't go to church. Or when the weather's good. Or when there's conflict. Or when we're upset about something. Or somebody says something that we don't like. Or how about this? Who spend more money doing things like eating out on entertainment than investing in the work and the ministry and the mission of the local congregation. It's interesting, as I was doing some research on this message, I found something out that I never knew before. Do you know that Christians, on average, gave more money to their local church during the Great Depression, the worst economic crisis that we've ever experienced, than they give today? Do you know that? I found out this week that Christians, on average, gave 3.3% of their annual household income during the Depression, even though they had next to nothing. You know what we give today? And I'm not talking about somebody who gives once in a while randomly. I'm talking about a regular giver gives anywhere from 1% to 2.5% of their annual income, even though the goal is tithing, right? Working toward a tithe, which Jesus affirmed. That's what the average church giver gives today. So we have more resources today, but not as much of a commitment. Actually sounds pretty similar to the people here in the story. I mean, the people here in the story, they weren't necessarily bad people. They were fine, hardworking people, people of means, and they had every intention of coming to this party until something better came up. And so that begs the question, what to us is better than the kingdom of God and what to us is better than the church, the primary means, the primary channel through which we experience God's kingdom? Hopefully the answer is nothing, but if you want to verify that, how do you spend your time? How do you invest your money? That will reveal where our priorities actually are. You know, it's interesting the people who make time for this party in the story, they're the people who didn't even know about the party to begin with. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the marginalized. Marginalized people are the first ones at the table. But why is this? Why do marginalized people make time for the party while others do not? Well, folks, maybe the answer isn't as complicated as we think. Maybe the simple answer is, because of their marginalization, they're not as preoccupied with the things that oftentimes preoccupy us. Not necessarily bad things, but still things that preoccupy us. It's the same reason that people turn to God when they're hospitalized, when they're facing a bad diagnosis, when they're in prison, 
when they're in some sort of crisis. It's not that they're looking for a crutch. Sometimes that's the criticism that people will give. Oh, you know, those folks, they're just looking for a crutch. No. It's that their eyes are open to the truth that everything else that they've been chasing after, it is far less important by comparison. I once had a church member whose son was incarcerated. And so she came to me one day and she asked me if I would go visit her son at the prison. I agreed, put it on the calendar. Well, before this man's conviction, he was doing pretty well. Educated, good career, making lots of money, advancing in that career. But as he told me, not a lot of time for God, things of the kingdom. All that changed when he was in prison. During the conversation that he and I had that afternoon, he said to me that while he repented of the crimes that brought him to prison, he was also strangely grateful for the opportunity that prison gave him to focus on these other things that he had been neglecting. Back when I was in college, that fraternity just wasn't a priority. Otherwise, I would have made more time for it. We make time for the things that are important to us and the things that matter. Well, folks, what could matter more? What could matter more than this party that God is throwing, this incredible party to which we've all been invited, to which we've all been compelled to come, and which requires nothing less than a full and complete and total commitment? May all of us, by the grace of the Lord, be committed to this party so that our host, Jesus Christ, is pleased and our lives bear witness to this resounding celebration. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, please forgive me. Please forgive all of us when we don't align our priorities properly, when we focus on other things, not necessarily bad things, not necessarily things that we shouldn't focus on, but we focus on these other things more than you in your kingdom, this party that you have put together and that you are still putting together and in through Jesus Christ, your son. God, even as you forgive us, please empower us Please enable us by your Holy Spirit to get our priorities straight and help us be those who proclaim this good news that you are throwing a party to which we've all been invited. We ask all these things in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.